This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Carolyn Miles, President and CEO of Save the Children, a nonprofit with an international reach in securing children's futures by bolstering a healthy start to life, access to education, and protection from harm. By investing in children's lives, Save the Children is changing the course of their future as well as that of the entire population. Programs now exist in the United States, Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, the Middle East, and Eurasia. Six major campaigns comprise the work of the organization and its partners through fervent, dedicated efforts to address child protection, education, emergency response, health and nutrition, hunger, HIV, and AIDS. Eglantine Jeb founded the Save the Children Fund in England in 1919 to aid children in war-ravaged Central Europe, proclaiming, We cannot leave defenseless children anywhere exposed to ruin, moral or physical. The organization has grown from the dedication and work of this one woman to an internationally acclaimed nonprofit, making it one of the highest rated and most effective charities in the United States and throughout the world. In 2013 alone, Save the Children reached more than 143 million children in over 120 countries. Carolyn joined the Save the Children team in 1998, served as Chief Operating Officer from 2004 to 2011, after which she became President and CEO. During her leadership term, the organization's reach has more than doubled. Available resources for its work have increased from $250 million to almost $700 billion annually, and nearly 90% of those resources are spent directly on programs for children. Carolyn champions ending childhood hunger, education success, and eradicating preventable child deaths as their signature campaigns. Carolyn, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Robert. It's great to be with you. Before you joined the Save the Children movement, you worked in the private sector in Hong Kong for American Express and also as an entrepreneur. This served as a springboard for your involvement and investment in children's welfare. Can you tell us more about your experience in Asia and literally what piqued your interest in switching to the nonprofit sector? Uh, sure. I uh, had the opportunity to go to Asia with American Express and as you said, I worked um, both for a big company, uh, Amex, and also in a startup business there. And uh, one of the, th I also had two of my three children while I was in uh, Hong Kong and we traveled a lot with our kids uh, around the region. And it was actually during one of these trips that um, it really hit me how different the life of my children was versus the life of the children that I was meeting. And uh, it was a particular trip actually to the Philippines and we were on our way into the capital city and stopped at a stoplight and a, a mom uh, had a baby and was begging at the window. And uh, I happened to be holding my son who was about the same age as that baby. And I think for me that was a real turning point um, in this recognition that most children in the world don't have the same opportunities that uh, a lot of our own kids have. And, and certainly my children had born to well-educated uh, parents that could give them kind of anything. And it really is has so much to do with where you're born and who you're born to. So that really set me on a path to... 
start doing some work actually originally in Asia when I was there in Hong Kong, uh, volunteer work. And then when I came back to the U.S. a couple years, uh, about a year and a half later, to uh, look for a nonprofit uh, position that worked for children. And I was lucky enough to end up at Save the Children. And your work as an entrepreneur, did that give you the kind of flexibility uh, that uh, that other people might not feel uh, as you know as an entrepreneur you have to deal with so many different things you have to be mm-hmm. flexible you have to be uh, uh, you have to be so many different things than working in the corporate sector uh, like a blue chip uh, American Express so did, did that experience set you up for ultimately leading save the children I think it did really help me in recognizing, I mean, we, we were starting up a retail coffee business uh, in Asia, the land of tea drinkers. So um, it was uh, it was quite an experience and we were doing kind of everything. And so it was very different from working in a big corporate organization. And you, you did have to kind of learn to do, uh, you know, do things on a shoestring, first of all, and you know, figure things out on the fly, and we it was a very fast-growing business, and so um, I think that really did help me in coming into a nonprofit situation. Hmm. And you've also served on the board of many organizations, uh, Interaction, uh, the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, the Academy of Education, Arts, and Sciences, uh, the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network, to name a couple. Uh, can you tell us what you learned from these senior positions and what you brought with you in those experiences to save the children? Uh, sure, and I'm I'm on a lot of those boards still, um, and I think what they give you, what they've given me, is a, a wider perspective. Um, a couple of those boards, uh, like the U.S. Leadership Global Leadership Coalition, is actually a coalition of corporations, NGOs, non-government organizations like ours. And um, actually, in this case, retired military leaders, all of whom believe that foreign assistance is a really important thing and part of what we need to do out in the rest of the world. So it's given me those connections um, and really that broader perspective. And it's very, very helpful when I uh, work inside of Save the Children and, and work on our mission to have that broader perspective. So. It takes a lot of time, but I think it's been really valuable, both what I can add in terms of the perspective that we bring um, on the world's children and their issues, as well as what I can bring back. Yeah, and I was just going to say, uh, you must bring significant things to bear on those boards as well. It's not just a one-way street. That's right, and and I think because Save the Children is on the ground in so many countries, we actually work in 120 countries around the world, um, and in really all of those countries, we have Save the Children staff um, on the ground, and most of them are from the country where we work, so in Ethiopia, they're almost all Ethiopians, and they have great knowledge of kind of what the perspective is on the ground and how how development is working and how children are faring on the ground. And children are a great kind of indicator of how well a country's doing. Uh, the health of a country's children is a really good indicator of how well that country is doing overall. And as you mentioned, you're in so many countries. And do you feel a an intrinsic support from the, uh, the political uh, machinery and elected uh, officials specifically for your work? Well, it depends. <laughs> um, you know, it, it really does depend on what country you're working in. And we try to get uh, elected officials and government to support our work wherever we're working. Um, you know, and it can be, uh, 
it can be a tough slog. I mean, here in the United States, we spend a lot of our time advocating with the U.S. government to support the work that we do around the world. And as you can imagine, in tight budget situations, that can be difficult. Um, and in countries like Nepal, for example, where we work, um, you know, it can be difficult to convince uh, governments there that the most important thing is actually, you know, child survival and making sure your kids live past the age of five or making sure that every child is actually getting at least a basic education because there are many, many priorities in those countries and very, very few resources often. And um, so that can be difficult. Also, you know, in conflict situations, it's very tough. We work in many conflict situations around the world. So Central African Republic, for example, where, you know, you really don't have a very well-functioning government. So it's pretty tough to, um, you know, to get the government to focus on the things that we want them to focus on, which is children. And you talked about your work in Hong Kong, and obviously you're well-traveled. Uh, do you remember as a child uh, having this kind of international perspective or at least a desire to, to serve on a wider uh, basis than just your, your home street? You know, actually, unlike a lot of our staff who um, I think have had experiences from a much younger age, I really did not come to this work until later, uh, till I traveled extensively in Asia. That was really the turning point for me. I uh, grew up in uh, Pennsylvania outside of Pittsburgh and had a pretty kind of normal suburban life and um, and frankly did not think a lot about the world when I was younger. Very different, by the way, from most young people today. It's yeah. a totally different world today. Yeah, and clearly young people are very quick to express and want to get out and serve. That's right. Which is Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Can you paint a picture of Save the Children's Model for our listeners who may not be familiar with your organization? Uh, do you place equal weight on deploying personnel to the field for service work uh, across the globe and on influencing policy and lending support and resources to your partners on the ground? You know, kind of how does the model itself sure. work? Sure. Well, it is really about both of those things. I mean, the first thing I would say is that the model is basically, um, it, it's really founded on this one uh, underlying principle, which is which, which is what our founder, Eglantine Jebs, Jebs, stood up for, which is that children have basic rights. Um, they have the right to survive, first of all. They have a right to survive and be healthy. They have a right to an education, a basic education. And they have the right to be protected from harm. So if you look at our work today, it's really very much still in that vein. We have those three major parts of work that we do under health, education, and protection of kids. We do that work in development contexts and in a lot of emergency contexts. That's still that, that set of work. And we both, our, our mission actually says that we want to make breakthroughs in the way the world treats children and we want to make lasting and immediate change in their lives. So that's both the policy work and the kind of advocacy work, the, the long-term work where we're trying to change the way the world treats children and we're doing the immediate work of on-the-ground programs uh, in all those countries. And we combine those two things and we think our advocacy and our policy work is very much driven and important to be driven by the evidence we build of what works on the ground. So we're speaking from experience. We're not kind of, 
you know, speaking theoretically, we're saying these are the things that really work for kids on the ground. We know this because we actually do this work on the ground. And then we try to change policy to impact many, many more children than we can reach directly. Mm -hmm. So, And you talked about the political difficulties, and one mm -hmm. of them is the serious con uh, the Syrian conflict, rather, that yes. really is, has wreaked havoc on that country politically, socially, and economically. It's made it one of the most difficult places in the world to be a child. Uh, education is now a deadly pursuit for both teachers and children alike, which we don't tend to understand here in the United States. And access to proper nutrition itself continues to be strained. So what does Save the Children's Syrian campaign focus on, and, and what have been the outcomes so far? Sure. Well, sadly, we're coming up to the fourth year, actually, of the Syrian crisis. So we have been working on, and we've been working on this at Save the Children since the beginning, uh, working with and for children. So, you know, this has been a huge refugee crisis, first of all. So there are three million people who have fled the country, and half of those uh, people are under 18. They're children. So a, a huge refugee crisis, uh, 200,000 people have died during the, the last four years uh, in and around Syria. And our focus really has been on children, both refugees outside and, and those inside. And one of the things that we focus on so much right now is making sure that you don't have a lost generation of kids. Um, particularly among, well, in both refugees and inside Syria, these are children that are you know, have had a lot of difficulty staying in school, being in school. We need these children to get back into school. We need these children not to become a lost generation. Um, and frankly, there's a lot of uh, risk of these children being, you know, radicalized and and completely uh, disconnected from the, the Syria that they knew, uh, which was a middle-income country, by the way. Uh, before this conflict. And, you know, I think one telling statistic from Syria is that they were on track to um, to reduce child mortality by two-thirds, which is one of the Millennium Development Goals in Syria. They're now completely off track of being able to do that. So the mortality rates in Syria, the child mortality rates of kids under five have really risen. And that's, I think, a, you know, a key indicator. Again, children as an indicator of, of how a society is doing. It has just completely torn apart this country. Do you see any light at, at the end of that uh, prognosis? You know, it's very hard, I think, in Syria to see a political solution um, in Syria. And I think our best, uh, our best work and our best efforts really can be on trying to make sure that those kids, both those who have left and those who are still inside, do have some kind of future. I actually was in um, one of our big programs there is in Zatari, which is a the big refugee camp in Jordan, 80,000, 85,000 people. And I met with some of the children. We were running a, a youth center there and uh, met with one of the young boys there who was about 15. He was telling me about his life in Syria. Normal kid, was in high school, really doing well, looking forward to college, and then obviously had to leave his home before because of the fighting and I, I said to him what you know what do you think your future is like and he looked around at this this huge refugee camp and he said to me I, you know I don't have a future oh. and that's the worst thing you could ever hear a child say is they don't have a future and 
that's what we have to do something about. We have to give these kids a future through education, through, you know, as they get older, through some kind of training so they can actually, you know, get jobs and make a living and they can, they can survive. And that's really what we've got to do. And obviously the lack of hope has so many consequences beyond borders, doesn't it? It does. It does. And that's one of the things you so worry about in that region of the world. Save the Children's also been instrumental in emergency relief projects, uh, from flooding in Colorado and tornadoes in Oklahoma to Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines and Hurricane Sandy in the United States. Uh, Save the Children's had a monumental impact on bringing resources, aid, and hope to children devastated by these natural disasters. Can you tell us uh, a little about how the organization and implementation of emergency relief is carried out under the pressure of deploying help as soon as possible? So it's a big challenge, I have to say, and becoming, uh, you know, every year we look at how many emergencies we respond to, and many of them, you know, people will never have heard of, but this past year, in 2014, it was over 100 emergency responses around the world. And um, it's difficult because, on the one hand, we don't uh, have the resources to have people kind of sitting around waiting for emergencies to happen. But on the other hand, we know that they're going to happen around the world. And so we have some different ways now of deploying people. We do have a very small group of people who work on emergencies kind of all the time, relatively small scale. But when something really big happens, like the typhoon in the Philippines uh, last year, we have to surge people in from all the different countries where we work. And we've done a lot of training of staff all around the world to be able to respond in emergencies. And so we surge those people in. We also have some volunteer and kind of on-call uh, staff that we can deploy as soon as an emergency hits. We've kind of, you know, got agreements with them that when those things happen, they will, they will within 24 hours, they'll deploy to, um, to an emergency. So, so we've come up with ways to do that, but we really don't, you know, when I look at my plan for 2015, I don't have in there, you know, a giant emergency response because we don't know where that's going to be. We don't know when that's going to be. Um, the chronic ones like Syria we can plan for, but the natural disasters or the rapid onset uh, conflict or something like Ebola, which we, we did respond to this summer, we, those aren't planned. And so that it does put a strain on the organization. But we've, we've come up with, I think, some creative ways to try to do that. We still have to do more engagement, I think, particularly... I think there's opportunities with both companies and with volunteers that have some really specific skills. Um, you know, in an emergency, you need people who know how to do logistics, for example. You're moving large amounts of things and people um, to places. And uh, so being able to bring that kind of uh, expertise into the work we do, we're, we're doing some more work with companies, for example, like UPS and people like that FedEx that have that as a part of their business that's what they do. So. And do, you, do you find that you're getting uh, the kind of support that you would hope and expect from the corporate sector obviously they're on the ground they have so much to, mm. to, to lose by these things beyond obviously the human impact are you getting the kind of support that you would like and that you would expect? 
Well, we work with probably half of the Fortune 500 uh, companies, at least half of them in some way. And I think more and more companies are looking at their relationships with organizations like Save the Children, not as kind of we're going to write you a check, but we want to partner with you as a real partner. So some of that obviously has to do with, with funding that they can give to an organization, but a lot of it is with expertise. And, um, you know, a really good example, we're working with Johnson & Johnson all around the world on, you know, our newborn survival. I mean, babies is a big part of their, their business around the world. And uh, one of our major objectives around the world is to make sure that kids don't die under the age of five. And the majority of children that die under the age of five die in the first month. That's babies. So working with J and J on that issue and on things that we can do on the ground and work that we can do with their own people and with their R&D and all of those things um, can be hooked into to what we're trying to do together. Yeah. Now this of course is emergency relief and then you get the slow burning issues that are no less chronic and critical like HIV and AIDS uh, which plagues an estimated 34 million, million people across the, the world. Can you tell us more about the treatment and prevention campaign and what kind of impact it's had thus far? Sure. Well, of that 34 million, um, 3.4 million are children who are currently living with HIV and AIDS. So um, that is a is a big issue. And actually, there is a you know there there is the possibility that we could actually see in the not too distant future we could see an AIDS-free generation of kids because AIDS is passed on from the mother to the child. So preventing that transmission and actually getting to the point where none of that transmission happens to children um, through mothers, through the mothers, is is definitely possible. And we think about this AIDS-free generation, and um, that's a lot of what our work uh, really focuses on, is stopping that transmission. And what are the biggest barriers to educating the public? Uh, just to take an example, in Russia, for example, the, the amount of money and resources and attention devoted to HIV and AIDS is minuscule compared to the population. So how does the organization you know, fight to tear down these obstacles for children? Well, I think, I think with things like HIV AIDS, it's really working inside of those countries and it's working with both um, the, the general population to educate them. Uh, and with HIV AIDS, it's really educating them on what is this disease, how, do, you know, how is it transmitted, um, what can be done. And it's also working with governments and trying to get them to give attention to those issues inside their country. Um, as I said, that's, you know, that can be a real challenge in, in some, in some places where we work. And we have, you know, we have more success with some governments than we do with others, for sure. Now, considering that the work that you do is, is, um, just, uh, indelibly positive for the society, can you, Give us an idea of why you would get that kind of pushback from governments. Is it just a financial issue, or is it a is it a uh, a philosophical issue, quote unquote? I mean, how do how do they yep. justify just not yep. devoting the proper attention to this? Yep. Well, a lot of times, so it can certainly be driven by finances, and that's just a you know issue of we think there are things that are more important in some cases, and depending on the country, you know, defense is the most important thing, and that's where any of the funding that they 
they have is going, or most of it is going. Um, but the other issue oftentimes is, depending on the country, and particularly in middle-income countries, actually, or, or emerging middle-income countries, you know, the poorest children are the ones who are dying, not getting an education, not, you know, in child labor, not being protected from harm. And those people don't have a huge voice. Um, you know, I'll give you an example in Guatemala, where I just was last month. You know, it's the Mayan populations, the indigenous populations um, up in the northern part of Guatemala, where you have see most of the malnutrition, most of the, the child mortality. And those people are very they're they're not at all powerful politically so politicians everywhere you know are listening to the constituents that they think have the power to keep them in office and in power and oftentimes those people have no voice This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Carolyn Miles, President and CEO of Save the Children. And we've been talking about the uh, the things uh, like the natural disasters and also HIV/AIDS. But then, um, when you get right down to adults abusing children, uh, each mm -hmm. year up to one and a half billion children experience physical, emotional, sexual violence, and tied into these travesties is the worldwide issue of child trafficking and prostitution. Mm -hmm. So what measures are in place to combat violence, trafficking, and sexual abuse of children globally? Yeah, this is an area, um, Robert, where there's actually a lot of laws and policies. So it isn't usually an issue of passing new laws or policies, but you do have to change behavior. Um, in many countries where we work, and uh, India is one of them, that's a, a really good example. You know, there are lots of laws on child labor in, in India, and state by state in India, and nationally, you know, across the whole country, there are laws. But... It comes down to attitudes and beliefs, and people look the other way um, when a 12-year-old is involved in, uh, you know, harmful labor or child labor there. And so you've got to also start within the society. You know, you have to change the attitudes of parents. You have to change the attitudes of employers in this case when you're talking about child labor. You've got to change the attitudes of the police to enforce these things. I mean, you really have to get in to the community level and start to try to change those beliefs and attitudes. Because oftentimes on this particular issue, for example, child trafficking, child labor, child abuse, and, and um, particularly sexual abuse, there are lots of laws, but it is really about behavior and that's the change you're trying to make. And a lot of our programs, there's a big behavior change component. 
and I would think that you know laws are very black and white, but uh, behavior can take generations to change. So That's how right. do you, how do you actually get right in there and yep. and move a, a culture to change their behavior? Well, what you do, um, as I said, uh, we have teams on on the ground in all of the countries where we work. So in the case of India, you know, our team on the ground are Indians. They're from those particular areas. They're even from you know they're from the states where we work. So they understand the culture and they can go in and understand the, you know, who is it that's going to be able to change some of those behaviors. Um, a great example in a lot of countries where we work, the big decision maker on um, how a woman gives birth, for example, which has a lot to do with having a safe birth and having, you know, child, a child survive birth is the mother-in-law. She's the one who decides. Who, what what happens with the with the young woman in terms of birth? Where she gives birth? Whether she'll go to the hospital? Whether she won't? Who will be in attendance? Will they have a trained birth attendant, a midwife? Nobody. Um, you know, will the woman be allowed to give birth? You know, in a clean place or out in the stable with the animals, which unfortunately in some places is where women give birth. So that we understanding that we have a whole program that works with mother-in-laws and it's really focused on getting them to focus on the, the the health of their grandchildren and how much influence they can have and if you make them the champions it's amazing what you could change and so. um, you talk about women giving birth and uh, clearly tied into that is is childhood nutrition so what does Save the Children, uh, what does your childhood nutrition campaign entail? Well, we're really uh, working there on both improving the health and nutrition of mothers um, and newborns, uh, but particularly children under the age of five, of, uh, the children under the age of two. Um, malnutrition actually has been shown to be a key underlying factor for the death of kids under five. So about 40% of the death of kids under five is attributable to this underlying issue of malnutrition. When kids are malnourished, they aren't strong enough to withstand even a common thing like pneumonia, which is a you know very common um, issue in terms of the developing world. And if they're malnourished, they they will die in much greater numbers. The other big issue on malnutrition is something that's called stunting, which is kids survive, but they are extremely um, small and underweight for their age, which physically is an issue, but actually the real issue is one that you don't see, which is what happens to kids' brains and the development of kids' brains if they don't get the right nutrition, particularly from conception to age two. Yeah, and that can't be revisited once it's over, it's over. No. No, you can't go back and kind of make up for those thousand days from conception to age two if a child didn't get the right nutrition. They will be stunted both physically but importantly mentally for the rest of their lives. And that really plays into, you know, again, the development of a country. I mean, if you, if the, if the productivity of your population has been really reduced because of malnutrition of kids when they're young, you're just you're, the country is not going to go forward in the way that it could if you if you tackle that. So, and do you find that countries in the developed world are actively supporting malnourishment uh, throughout the rest of the world in the developing uh, part of the the globe? 
They are actually, um, you know, the U.S. government is a good is a good example here. Um, the U.S. government has something, uh, an initiative called Feed the Future, which is really focused on uh, food, as you might expect, and and uh, we've been pushing very hard to make sure it's not just about productivity of places being able to grow more food, but nutrition, so that they're growing the right foods and mothers particularly are getting the right information about how to make sure they prepare the most nutritious food for their kids and that they, especially in those thousand days, that they're getting the right nutrition and their kids are getting the right nutrition. So the U.S. government's actually been a real leader on this um, particular issue and other governments around the world as well. Um, many of the governments in Africa, the countries in Africa are really focused on this idea of nutrition and making sure, because again, they see the, they see the impact on their country's future in making sure that kids and mothers get the right nutrition. And do you work directly with governments to influence policy along these lines? We do. We work directly with governments both in the countries where we have programs as well as in the developed uh, country governments to influence their policies, their, you know, their aid flows, um, the things they spend their time on and their focus on what kinds of programs they're, they're really delivering. So we do. And you mentioned the UN Millennium Development Goals and what role do they have uh, and have they played in Save the Children's Manifesto? Yeah, they've actually been quite important. And, um, I know they're, you know, outside of the development, uh, sector, they're not as well known, although they've become, I think, more well known in the last couple of years. But they are these eight goals that the, the, all of the countries that are members of the UN signed up to. Um, and they've made a great difference. Um, particularly the two or three that we focus on. One is on cutting the number of kids that die under the age of five by two-thirds, and that's in each country around the world. And that has had a big impact. Since 1990, we've cut the number of child deaths from, you know, to about t over 12 million a year down to about 6 million a year. So in half since 1990 by 50% around the world. And some countries have done better than others, but globally, that's what it looks like. And the Millennium Development Goals have had a big impact on, on that, on that issue. Education is another good one really focused on getting more kids into school um, and again very very successful hundreds of millions of kids in school that weren't in school you know 15 years ago the real issue now with education is you can't just get kids into school they actually have to learn while they're there so yes. a lot of our work is focused now on learning outcomes not just it's not good enough to just get them in the chair at the you know in the classroom they actually have to learn and also, you mentioned education, and obviously learning extends to uh, adults just throughout the whole process as well. And right. I, would, I would imagine that very few people, or relatively few people, know about the UN Millennium Development Goals. Mm. So, so can you give me an idea of why that's not, given what they are and what they represent and the impact that they've had, not only on Save the Children, but across other, so many other organizations and countries, why isn't something like that better known? Well, it's an interesting issue and actually one now that they're finishing. So the, the 2015 is the last year of the Millennium Development Goals and there's been a lot of discussion on why they weren't better known and part of it was that it was, they were kind of developed from the top down and uh, some folks at the UN in New York kind of developed them and then tried to get them taken up and they were take, they were taken up by many countries and, 
and people started to learn about them much later. But this time around, um, there's a very different process to try to develop what comes after the UN uh, Millennium Development Goals. They're calling them the Sustainable Development Goals, but many, many countries have been very, very involved from the beginning. And there's also a campaign um, with young people, actually, to try to get this out into the public using a lot of social media, for example, um, and to try to get them to understand what are these things. Because really, these goals are not so much for you and I. They are for the 15-year-old of today because they're really focused on what do we want the world to look like in 2030 and beyond. Right, when they're and adults and have their own children. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And what's, so, the name, what's the name of this campaign? So it's right now it's called Action 2015, and um, there's actually a website, action2015.org, and um, people can learn a little bit more about what this process is to develop these goals, what they look like right now, how people can get involved, um, why they're important. So, and we've actually, we took a, a, a bunch of 15-year-olds um, to Washington about a month ago and um, had them go and talk to government officials and UN officials and really talk about why they thought these things were so important and what they wanted the world to look like in 2030. And, must have made an incredible impression on these young people. It was it was terrific. I met with them when I was there, and they were and they are so much more worldly, you know, <laughs> than than I ever was at fifteen. I have to say, yes. I mean, really unbelievably articulate, and had been in you know much of Africa and Asia before already, and so it was it was really amazing. Yeah. They were terrific. And you've talked a lot about partnerships. So how are these partnerships uh, forged, uh, both in in the United States and throughout the world? How do you generally identify and then actually go ahead and, and solidify these partnerships? Well, it really depends on what we're working on. And, um, you know, if it's a partnership with the government, um, we go to the, the right place in that government. So say we're working in uh, the Philippines and we're trying to influence, you know, some of the health indicators or the, you know, the, the, the outcomes for, of health for kids. We'll go and work with the Ministry of Health there, who's really in charge of health programs and, and health efforts and policy in that country. And we'll work both at the national level, but we'll also work with governments down to the community level. Because a lot of times, you know, it, the actual, again, you can have policies at the national level, but getting them implemented down where, particularly where poor kids live, that's, that's really the challenge. Um, so that's one way in which we do partnerships. Um, a lot of times in things like child nutrition, there are coalitions of organizations that want to work together. So on this issue of nutrition in the first two years of a child's life, for example, there's a thousand days coalition that's made up of 50 different organizations that believe this is really important. And we do things together. We do advocacy together. We do social media together. We do programs on the ground together. Um, so those are a lot of times it's around the issue that you're that you're really trying to drive. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, you're influenced, uh, and the organization itself is influenced by uh, so many things that happen around the world. So that, in a sense, makes it reactive. Uh, can you give us an idea of what the most significant influences on your vision for the organization are beyond the events that actually that you must react to and, and often immediately? 
Sure. Well, I am actually really uh, blessed to have a fantastic board, and um, I think they are. They certainly have an influence uh, on me and on my work. The chair of our board is Anne Mulcahy, who used to be the CEO of Xerox for uh, ten years and worked for Xerox, I think, for thirty years. And you know, she is a great uh, leader really turned Xerox around and has some fantastic ideas just in terms of leadership and management. And you can bring a lot of those things into the nonprofit sector. So she's one influence. Uh, Koki Roberts is on our board, another great, um, you know, mentor, I think, for me. And communicator. She's a fantastic communicator and, and is really able to, to help us with that. Um, so those are a couple of the people that I think, and then our founder, I think, is a is a mentor and a, you know, a, a real visionary for the organization, and we talk about her all the time. And her idea that children actually have rights, I think, is a is a fundamental thing, uh, foundation for our work. Sure, so. and and I would imagine, uh, well, not imagine, I I know this, that young people actually look up to you as a mentor and a role model. So do you spend um, part of your time uh, speaking to children and, and uh, talking to them and perhaps meeting with them and recognizing that, that you yourself are now in a position to be that mentor and role model for others? I do, and I, I try to do that as much as I can, um, particularly with students. Um, I was out at Stanford uh, last month, a couple weeks ago, and talked with um, people interested in international development, uh, students there, uh, which was great. We actually have an advocacy day in New York, uh, or in Washington, sorry, and we bring in primarily young people um, to come and do advocacy with us because the best voice for children is other children. I mean, that is a really powerful um, thing. So we have kids that come from all over the country and um, we teach them about what Save the Children is all about and we talk to them about, you know, an issue for children in the United States and an issue for children internationally and then we go up on the hill. And, uh, you know, our elected officials don't listen much to me, but they will, <laughs> they will listen to those kids. So um, they do listen to what they have to say, particularly if they're constituents from their, their particular district, which is what we try to, we try to match up against. So, um, so th that's really powerful. Kids speaking up for other kids is, is extremely powerful. Is this an annual gathering in D.C.? It is. Oh. Yep. It's in April. It's on the 20th and the 21st this year. So the, we always the, do it in the spring. Does it have a name that people could look Advocacy up? Day. Advocacy so Day. So if, if you go to our website, savethechildren.org, people will be able to to look it up. And they can find out. There's probably a, there's a write-up I know of like last year's Advocacy Day, and there's probably some info about this year's now up there. Wonderful. So, well, what yeah. are some of the hardest lessons you've learned on your own journey, Carolyn? Well, I think one of the hardest lessons is probably, um, you kind of touched on it earlier, uh, you know, just because it's the right thing to do and it, it, it makes sense and it's about children doesn't mean people will do it. And, um, I think oftentimes, uh, the political process gets in the way or, um, certainly conflict and, and war oftentimes gets in the way, which is which is a really sad thing for children. But um, I think that's one of the hardest lessons. I think I came in to save the children 
16 years ago and I think originally I thought you know well this will this will be easy we'll be able to convince everybody to be able you know to do these things and and raise lots of money and and get lots of new policies passed and do lots of important work on the ground and um, you know I think the hardest thing is it's not it's it's still not easy even though we have a fantastic mission it still isn't easy so and how much of that is apathy and how much of that is just people being so busy with their own lives that it's just enough that they can focus on putting food on the table and focusing on their own families well certainly it's both and I think we've got a lot of we actually do um, and and uh, we do a fair amount it's a fairly big part of what we do we do work here in the United States with poor families here because a lot of people say to us you know this is great and of course we want to save the lives of children and make sure they have a better future internationally and outside of the US but what about our kids here and we actually believe that's true as well so we work in uh, about 20 states here in the United States, the poorest, in the poorest areas of the U.S. And I, I touched on in the beginning of our time together on the changes the organization's undergone. So how do you foresee the organization changing in the next five years, 10, maybe 20 years? Well, I think, and actually we're just talking now about kind of our vision for 2030. Um, as we finish, we're in a strategic plan that ends this year in 2015. And uh, in looking forward to 2030, one of the big things that Save the Children will be doing in an, in an even more focused way is trying to reach those most deprived kids, the hardest to reach children. And that's across the board. That's whether you're talking about the United States or whether you're talking about, um, you know, in in uh, South Sudan, those hardest to reach kids, uh, oftentimes in conflict areas or in really, really deep poverty, and so I think that's going to really challenge us. But that's that's where we've set our sights. The other thing that I think will be so important for an organization like Save the Children is that we have to get better at, you know, we we work in 120 countries. We're doing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of programs every single day. We have to get better at gathering the knowledge um, of what we're doing and what works and not recreating things that we've learned in other places and sharing that. Uh, and so that, that information and being able to disseminate that information is going to become more and more important. We do that in a basic way now, but I think we've got to be much smarter about it. And the third thing is probably the use of technology in our work. Um, we are starting, I mean, we use technology every day and kind of the, 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 the things we do, but actually getting technology into the work that we do uh, in terms of our health work and our education work, that's becoming more and more possible because even in the farthest flung place that we work, everybody has a mobile phone. And that's the technology that we can use uh, to really help people and empower people in the places where we work. So how do we use that? We're not quite at smartphones everywhere, but there's smartphone technology now in China when I was there that I saw uh, late last year, a $70 smartphone. And we were doing a great program on vaccination of kids and keeping track of all the vaccinations of kids and sending text messages to mothers on their cell phones so that they would bring their kids in for their vaccination. And that's a vision 
of using technology that, you know, that's in the next 15 years, we'll absolutely be able to do that in more and more places. Yeah, and as much as we know about what's developing in technology, we really have no clue what's going to be in 2025 or 2030 as far as what's available technologically, do we? No, we don't. So I'm sure it will be, you know, totally different from anything that we can imagine today. But I think being able to be nimble enough to see how can we use that technology in the work that we do and how can we make sure that people that we work with can be empowered by that technology just like we are, that's, that's going to be the real challenge. And you mentioned strategically looking forward to 2030. So that's a 15-year time frame. In your experience, do, do nonprofits um, have the ability or take advantage of the ability, if they do have it, to actually look that far ahead? Well, I think they have the ability, you know, it's, it's the difference between you can look ahead to that time and then there's the difference of how do you execute against that vision. And I think that's where, you know, the, the really hard stuff comes. And, um, you know, making sure that we're doing the things today that get us to the point where we can do what we, so, at least some of the things we might be able to predict will happen in 2030. Um, that's that's really the hard part, and uh, I think we've spent some time, as I said, really thinking about how do we position today in 2015 for at least some of the things we think we can predict. I mean, one thing I I think we can predict is that the world is probably going to be an even more difficult place, and conflict um, and crisis is not going to go away, and in fact sadly, I think, will become more and more of a reality of the places that we work. So, And speaking of looking ahead, what advice do you have to offer to young social entrepreneurs who may well have discovered their passion and are now fighting for a way to turn that passion into a project for the greater good? Well, you know, I, I meet a lot of young people who have started off their own, you know, nonprofits or their own social enterprise, etc. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, what I would say is from the beginning, think about partners and think about ways that you can work with others to scale up your great ideas. Because the biggest challenge I think we have is there's lots of great ideas, there's lots of new ideas, new ways to do things, but you've got to be able to get them to scale for them to really make a big difference. Um, and that's that's what's really important. And again, with technology, there are lots of ways now to scale things that didn't exist before, but people have to look at part, they don't, they need to think about the fact that yes, it's important what I do, but it's more important what I do with other people that will make the lasting difference, not what I do just by myself. And um, so I think that that idea of partnership from the beginning is really important. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, earlier about how aware young people are compared to what it was a generation or two ago. And Sorry. I see it all the time, and it's actually a cause for optimism that these uh, these young people really want to make something of their lives beyond just the house and the paycheck. It's really great to see. It is great to see and gives you, I think, a lot of hope for the future. It's There is a, a huge, um, you know, focus uh, of young people on these issues and they, not only are they focusing and talking about it, they're actually doing something about it, which is fantastic. Right. Well, Carolyn, to you and your entire team at Save the Children, our heartfelt gratitude for all you do on behalf of the world's children. Great to have you with us today. Thank you, Robert. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. And the best way to reach Carolyn and to support the crucial work of Save the Children is through SaveTheChildren.org, and you can also read Carolyn's blog, Logging Miles, on their website. 
Click on the links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.